Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and welcome to this first ever live field recording of our Talking Apes podcast. Producer Meg Stark and I are here in Sierra Leone talking to some of the people working to change the fate of the Western chimpanzee and other wildlife that shares this critical West African rainforest. That chaotic sound you heard in the intro are just a few of the over 100 rescued chimpanzees behind me in the Takagama Chimpanzee Sanctuary. Those are the voices of wildlife conservation's front line here in Sierra Leone. On this episode of Talking Apes, we're going to add one more voice to that mix. That's the voice of Bala Amar Sakaran, the founder and director of Takagama Chimpanzee Sanctuary. We met with Bala in the sanctuary, nestled in the hilly rainforest just outside the capital of Freetown, to discuss the critically endangered western chimpanzee and how it's dangerously close to being extirpated from its home in the West African lowland rainforest. The cause? Poaching for bushmeat and the accelerated logging of its rainforest home. So to the background of constantly buzzing insects, a forest of bird voices, and an occasional screaming chimp, we sat down with Bala for a conversation about how Takagama got started and the conservation work that is driving the future of this unique sanctuary. Maybe let's just start with where you rescued your first chimp back in the mid 80s, around, I don't know, 1987 or so. And what would you, how would you describe the, the conservation situation then versus now? Like, what, what give us a, a sense of those 30, 40 years. Right, okay. First, uh, it's a pleasure to host you. And uh, I know we've known each other for some time now. Uh, it's nice that you come back and you stay with us and it's a pleasure and we call this place the family. And it's nice to welcome two more people to the family and uh, we'll do our best to keep you happy here. Now, coming back to your question, I think at that time when I rescued the little chimp Bruno, it's got nothing to do. I was not on an expedition to rescue chimps, as you know. Actually, I was actually going to a hospital to look, you know, take care of my father-in-law's hernia. <laughs> so it was quite different. Yeah, that's so, not rescuing. No, not at all. Not at all. So we were going to this remote area because uh, Freetown didn't have very good hospital facilities at that time. But there was an Italian missionary hospital. It was about 70, 80 miles from Freetown. So we decided to take him there. So when we took him there, we didn't realize it's an operation and he's going to stay there for a while. So you got to kill a couple of days waiting for the doctors, uh, you know, to do the procedure. Um, so we decided to look around. So that's what made us go to this small village called Matatoka, which is uh, in the north about uh, approximately about 100, 125 miles from here. And uh, you get there and you're talking about wildlife and this and that. And somebody tells me, oh, well, we got a monkey here in this village. So I said, okay, let's go have a look, you know. Um, so we went there and without realizing it's not just a monkey, it happens to be a chimpanzee. And um, he was tied to a tree. He looked very malnourished, dehydrated, and uh, he was not in a good shape at all. And uh, at that time, uh, um, my wife and I, we just newly married and uh, my brother was here on a holiday and uh, um, we were, how do I say? I mean, we were not going to save this chimp because we were, we wanted to go into chimpanzee conservation or anything like that. I think it was the instinct. I think we are married. We didn't have kids. 
when this little baby chimp, you know, looking up to you and uh, wants to come to you kind of thing. So we grabbed him and I think just that first moment of the chimp coming to you and hugging you and holding you as if... Is that the first time you would ever help Ever, ever, ever. Yeah. yeah, I've never, never, ever uh, held a chimp before. And uh, it's the same feeling my wife had too. And we, we, I don't know, something really moved us to say that we cannot leave this chimp behind. And the people who was a very poor family, uh, at that time we didn't even know it was illegal or whatever. So the people were saying, well, you know, we've been feeding this chimp, it cost us some money. So actually, we gave $20 to the people, okay, go and buy something for yourself, but we're not going to leave the chimp here. So we take him home. And uh, and that's, it all happened, not planned. And, um, you know, it's just that instinct uh, to help save another. What, you know. what were your, I mean, I'm really curious, what were your thoughts at that time, if you can recall them? What were you going to do with this thing? To be very honest, we didn't even think about that. That's the thing. Because the thing is about saving him. Everything else was later. If we knew, probably if we thought about it, we wouldn't have saved him. Let me put it that way. So I think it's more to do with, uh, let's look at the rest of the things later. But let's save this guy because I thought we would leave him there, he would die. So we said, okay, we take him. And that's it. And next thing is we were driving down to Freetown. I, you know, pe- people, there's a number of times in people's lives that they stop, they pause, they're laying in bed at night and they think, what if the road had split and gone another way? Yep. I mean, that's amazing to think of your life without that chimp. I mean, your whole life has, since then has been... Yeah, just, just imagine if I thought about all that, I mean, you're looking at, I'm stuck with chimps for 30-something years now. 33, 34 years. Well, and more than just chimps. I mean, you think about the conservation efforts, the ecotourism stuff you're involved with, the, the way you're connected to politics here in Sierra Leone and ministers and you know, working with schools and outreach. I mean, it's it's not just chimps. It's, yeah. yeah, because if you really want to help, situation, especially with the chimps and the predicament they are facing and all the destruction you see to our habitat and our environment and all that. You've got to think very holistically because you cannot be boasting about running a chimpanzee sanctuary without addressing the root causes of the problem. So this is why, um, this is something we thought about it long time ago. I said, look, you know, this is not going to be just a chimpanzee orphanage. Um, Takugama is more than that. So we really need to, if you really want to help the species, you really want to do something to leave your legacy, to say you have done something for chimpanzee conservation, I think you need to address all the other things surrounding this thing. And also, you know, we're in a bad place now. It's like uh, everything is being plundered from Mother Earth. Everything is going and no one is talking about giving back. And every individual makes a difference. And for me, giving back is giving something back to nature through the chimps. And that's what we've been doing. So once you start thinking along those lines, then it's not just a matter of bringing a chimp and looking after a chimp at Takugama. It's more than what are the drivers behind it, why the chimps are coming here. So if you start breaking that down into what are the problems and how you fix it, how do you mitigate that, then you obviously you branch into different things. And when you branch into different things, you meet a lot of roadblocks. So then you need to understand that it's not just about chimpanzee conservation. It is also talking about talking to humans, 
because they can make the difference. The, the people, the stakeholders, the people who can make a difference, the people who can support you, people who can back you in terms of if you want to come up with new policies and this and that. So you, you don't want to be in politics, but you got to play the politics. So you need to know the politicians. You need to know the institutions that are, um, that can be uh, uh, helping you to get your goals. And that is how, you know, it's like, it's not something you want to, but you have to. You know, you don't want to, I mean, it's like, you, you don't have to know the president or the minister of your country. But then if you want to run your thing smoothly, it's nice to know them. So it's like you are kind of, you, you make it a point. And the edge also, a lot of people connect with them because of their business or money or this or that. And if they also find you that they like to connect with you because for what you do for conservation, I think it's, an, it's a nice way because you have a, a, a different level. In, 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 you're not in the same basket. It's like uh, I would go to see a minister or something sometimes. You know, mostly these ministers, they have a security camera outside or something. So you go there, the secretary will tell you that, uh, do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't have one. Uh, but you see so many people are waiting today. Uh, I said, okay, fine, I'll sit there. You know, I, I have a lot of patience. I work with chimps. So I would say, okay, I'll I'll sit around for a while. And Chips and politicians, yes. that's an interesting... Uh... And nine out of ten times, if I'm fortunate, and if that minister or president or whoever sees me on that camera, the next thing is they will send the secretary out to say, you see, Bala is waiting for there. I know that this guy, I know he's in the bush and he is busy. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter if other people are there. Just bring him in for five minutes. Let's find out. So I would... I would get this treatment. So that happens not because my connection is anything to do with uh, business or politics, but it's simply because of what I do. So because of that, they will call you in. And the funny thing is, when you call in, sometimes you think that they recognize you and they call you. It's not always. Sometimes they want to talk to you simply. Sometimes I will just walk into a minister's place and he will sit there. I am sure, Bala, you come for something very important, right? But I also have something very important to talk to you. So what is it about? Okay, where is Bruno? I want to know more about Bruno. You know, what, what, what happened to him? You know, where is he? You know, people ask me and I say, well, only one guy knows, that's Bala. So sometimes Bruno, even in his absence, he opens doors for me. Not necessarily they have respect for me, but they want to know more about Bruno. So, you know, with a politician sometimes. So it, it kind of loosens, you know what I mean? So it, it's, it's a nice feeling, yeah. Well, speaking of Bruno, that was the, the chimp that you ended up rescuing was you named Bruno. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did Bruno get, I mean, how did you end up with giving it a name Bruno? And you said, you know, even Bruno in his absence. And so, so what happened? Why is what happened was when we, when we came back with the chimp in uh, Freetown, at that time, we haven't even uh, named him. The people there, they were just, kids were calling him Michael Jackson. <laughs> I said, why? Because they said, Michael Jackson has a baby chimp. Some, I think I remember at that time. Yeah, so you know how it is. This is why celebrities have to be extremely careful with what we do, right? Because if you, if you, that's the reason, like for me, a lot of filmmakers come here, they want to see me in sequences with this adult chimps. And I tell them, you know, at the beginning of the sanctuary, I've done that, but now I can't do it because people recognize you. I mean, coming back to Bruno's story, so brought him to Freetown, and we haven't really thought about any name when we were driving or coming down. 
But then when we were here, I think the following day or the next day or something like that, you had this big fight between Frank Bruno and Mike Tyson. That was the big boxing match. And uh, I don't know the way I'm brought up from small age. I always support the weaker side. I never support someone when he's strong. I feel the strong guy has a big following, always. It's the other guy, the underdog. He's the one always left out. He's the one struggling. Um, so, I mean, everybody knew. 99% of the people knew that on that day, um, Tyson is going to kind of destroy Frank Bruno. But for me, you know, this little chimp is like him, kind of, you know, um, lost hope, he's there, he's going to be thrashed, you know, whatever. Yeah, we just told him, okay, let's give this boy the name Bruno. Whether Bruno survives the fight or not, but that's his name. And that's how the name Bruno came in. Where, where's Bruno now? Well, it's a big question. As much as, if you ask 90% of the population down Freetown, they think that, uh, they even think that I communicate with Bruno on a daily basis. They, I mean, even if I tell them that he has gone, he hasn't come back, and lots of stories. If you go down, you'll find out. Some people even say that Bruno took a mobile phone and he communicates with me. I mean, it's crazy. The theories you come across, so many. And they said sometimes Bala goes missing from camp because he's on the other end of the camp talking to Bruno and, you know, lots of theories. But to be honest, Bruno left 16 years ago. It was April 23rd, 2006. Um, that was my second son's birthday. And that's the day this happened. And when he left, I was not here. Um, I was in a conference in the UK. By the time I came back, you know, I only heard the story. Um, since then, we have, uh, as part of our research and biomonitoring program, we have remote camera traps working all around the reserve. In a few sequences at that time, we picked him up, I think. Uh, we felt that he was in some, also he was in some sequence with some wild chimps. So that made us feel, uh, it's nice, he has gone back, he has integrated himself into a wild group. And uh, um, that's a very satisfying feeling for me because it's like sometimes when a chimp leaves, um, you don't know what's going to happen with him. You know, he could have been dead. Um, so, but that period we were monitoring then after like four or five years we didn't see anything for a long time and we we know that wild chimps come around and sometimes uh, a particular call a call sometimes from the bush kind of uh, wakes up every chimp here so sometimes they will all go bananas everybody will start shouting and responding as we know that voice kind of thing uh, but we can't prove that so it went on for a while, very long time, and not too long ago, we had another sequence on one of the camera trap, and uh, a big male chimp. I would say my wife thinks that he's, it's 99% it's him, but there's still 1% element because we cannot prove it. A chimp that came to one of the camera traps, I looked at it and basically displayed in front of the camera, kicked the trunk of the tree and he went. And wild chimps don't do that, you know what I mean? So it's possible, it's my man, it's quite possible, um, so we cannot really say where he is or whether he is there or whatever, but we obviously keep his memory alive and the story is alive. If you go to Freetown anywhere, they, um, it's not a single day whether you want to go and buy, a, buy stationery or you go to the local fishmonger or something like that. You know, Even before you negotiate price, they want to hear Bruno's story first before we talk about anything else. 
when you had Bruno in the beginning and you were just learning, you're not a primatologist. Not at you're all. Not, you know, you don't from. have, you know, zoo carekeeper kind of experience. And you, so you're kind of learning firsthand how to take care of a chimp, I assume. When, and then you take that step to creating what is now Takagama. What was the thing that you think you were least prepared for? I think probably least prepared was uh, getting to understand how much they are like us. That never occurred to us when we were rescuing him. But when you brought him home and the things he did and the way he demanded for affection and this and that, I mean, that made us understand that we are so close. It's just that he's a chimp and we are, we are humans. But uh, probably that's what led to the other things. It's a matter of uh, recognizing a species that is so much like us, so close to us, uh, you know, with all our intelligence, if you cannot... Uh, do the right thing towards this species, then what's the point calling us intelligent? So for me, it's more about, um, I think probably that's the one probably we never thought. And that's what caused, he, he, he created something like, um, what do I say? I would say that uh, it was made to me like an obligation. We need to do something. It cannot be a chimp. You just put him in the cage and look after him he kind of told us, no, we are more than that. You know, we cannot stay in a cage on a rope or a chain or something. You know, we got to live, be like chimps. And he taught me what is a chimp and how we as humans need to do something for the chimps. And I think that's the one probably I was least prepared. And once that happened, then I think the rest of the things, I think it's part of you know, you, once you decided this is your way, you want to help, then you cannot really boast about this is this is what you want to do for them, then everything falls in place, you know. Yeah. That is how the sanctuary was created because, I mean, you know that the whole thing started also with Jane Goodall's visits. So in 93, the Conservation Society of Sierra Leone, they put together a Wildlife Week celebration. Um, and they wrote to a few people at that time, kind of known conservationists to come here to visit and uh, be part of the celebration. And at that particular year, they invited Jane Goodall, Dr. Jane Goodall. At that time, she has finished her work in Tanzania, and um, um, she was not that very famous at that time, but conservation is new, who is Jane? The country didn't know. So we thought it's a real nice thing to bring her in at that time, and she accepted our invitation. And I was part of that, I was a member of the Conservation Society at that time. Um, so when Jane came, she got to know about Bruno and Julie staying with me, so she came to see them. So we got bonded. And uh, it was a genuine question from me to her, what do I do with Bruno and Julie? By then, I've rescued another chimp called Julie. And uh, she felt that we needed help. And she told me that um, there is an English couple in Zambia, uh, in Chimfunchi, and uh, she's very close with them, and she can help to talk to them to see if Bruno and Julie could go there. So because I told them that I don't want, I hate to see them in a cage. I want to go, I will not send him to the zoo. It has to be some sort of safe haven, some sort of sanctuary where they could go to. So she made the link between Sheila and Dave Cyril at that time. And uh, to the point, not only she made the contact, she even got them prepare the import permits for the chimps to go there. So I actually got the permits from 
Zambia. But one thing happened after Jane left. I was talking to a few people about chimps and how I'm going to get Bruno and Julie there. Then people said, but we know a chimp there, we know a chimp here, like that. So that prompted us to go around Freetown to look, to see. And I remember at that time, I think I could come across something like 20, 23 chimps at that time with people in different parts of Freetown. These were in pets. In the city? In the city. Pet, yeah. Like pet chimps? Yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So uh, people were having chimps. And, and you talk to them later, you find out that when they get boisterous and then they get bigger, either they get killed or they die naturally, they go and get another chimp. It's like a pet. It's a pet trade was flutter, flourishing at that time. So when Jane left, this is something occurred to me. Am I really trying to help the chimp problem or am I trying to help Bruno and Julie? So that kind of dawned on me. I think, am I being too selfish trying to help two chimps, but not chimps? Um, because if you really think that you are, you've understood them, then you go to the next level. It's not about the two individuals, it's about the species. So this is why I have to make that difficult uh, email uh, letter to Jane. At that time, telephones were not that much, so you'd be right, uh, emails or letters or something. And I told Jane that, Jane, with all respect to you, I know that uh, you have made this contact, but it just dawned on me, I think, uh, we've got to do something more for the Sierra Leone chimps than Bruno and Julie. And um, so I told her that uh, I think we've got to set up something here. What we need is not finding homes for Bruno and Julie, but to find more Jane Goodalls. That's what we need. We need to have more people talking for chimps, more people coming forward to help chimps and to see how we can help conserve the chimpanzees. So Jane, probably she was very startled about it because she has gone to the point of actually getting all the paperwork done and all that. But then I think she kind of felt that, um, you know, for me, that those few days I stayed with her, I, she made me feel that uh, we all have to take responsibility. We cannot dump our problems on, you know, that's the easy thing to do. Okay, there's Jane Goodall, she's the mother of chimps, that means you know, dump all the chimp problem on her. Um, that's what I wanted to come away from it. So I told Jane, Jane, you know what? I've decided we're going to do something here for chimps in Sierra Leone, right? And I wrote to her and uh, then I went and then again, you don't have the resources, you don't have anything, it's just something you want to do. So even at that point, I didn't want to start the sanctuary by myself. I didn't want to. I was going to facilitate it. So I took the story to the government, sat with them, spoke to them. They said, you know what? They said, um, look, we don't have a clue about how to run an orphanage or a sanctuary. We don't have anyone here to do that, right? In fact, we don't have anyone who is even used to handling chimps or anything like that. The only thing we can give you is we can support you, not with resources, but if you want a place where you want to start, we'll help you with that. Then they also told me that in terms of facilitating all the paperwork and this and that, fine. I said, okay, that's a good start. So what I did, I took this message to the commissioner, the delegate of the European Union at that time. 
So I went and explained to him that there is a problem like this with chimpanzees. At that time, European Union was giving some money to manage national parks and things like that. So I was trying to tell him it is all linked because if you don't create a safe haven for rescued chimps through law enforcement, then you cannot effectively run a park. So he understood. But then he told me, look, the country is going through a bad period at that time. They don't have the resources. How do I justify releasing money to set up a sanctuary when a government hasn't even found money to look after the orphanages for humans? And it was a very genuine, honest opinion, what he had. But then he said, I see passion. I see you really want to get this done as part of the conservation. When we are give, releasing the next grant for the national parks, we may be able to give you something to try. But with one condition, you have to do it. Because I don't see the government is in a position to undertake such an uh, obligation. Uh, that was a very big decision to make because, you know, you, you train yourself and you work in an accounting career and, you know, you, you never thought about uh, you're going to change your career to look after chimps or something like that. But at that time, I felt that's the right thing to do. So I gave a firm handshake and told him, yes, I'll do it. So here you are, like, what is this? 27 years. 27 years later, yes. 100 plus chimps later. Yeah. Um, I, I want to tell you a little story. Yesterday, um, there was a group here in the sanctuary, mm -hmm. and Noah was taking them on a tour, yeah. uh, on a, an afternoon tour. And there was a Sierra Leonean gentleman, and, and all of these people... They were, you know, they're above average in income, they look like, they're, you know, education, yeah. the whole thing. And the Sierra he, Noah mentioned the fact that, you know, all of these chimps here. And he said, so how many of these have come from Sierra Leone? And Noah said, all of them have come from Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. And he was shocked. Mm -hmm. And and you could see the, the reaction on faces yeah. of the people yeah. there. And here is somebody who is a Sierra Leonean. He's living here in Freetown. And when Noah started saying they've come from the bushmeat tray, the petrick, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. he, he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He just couldn't believe that was still true. Right. Yeah, so I understand. How, um, how, so 27 years, yeah. how do, how, where are we and how do you talk about that disconnect between these people who live in Freetown? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's a two-way because um, when we started the sanctuary, the biggest problem was the petrick. Right. So you had 20, 30 chimps with people. After three, four years, sometimes the same people or more people will go and get more chips. Right. So the faces changed, but the numbers remain constant. At any one time, you will see 20, 30 chimps with people. But then after two, three years, you still have the number, but not the same faces. So constantly people were going after um, hunting group of chimps to get a baby chimp. I mean, it's a very destructive way of uh, driving the pet rate. I mean, as you know, we have a lot of statistics in terms of every baby chimp gets to his destination, probably eight to 10 chimps have died. So if you look at it that way, so many chimps would have died if we didn't intervene at that point. So when the sanctuary came into, um, I mean, uh, when, it, when it came into life, one of the main things the government did was basically to give us that um, law enforcement authority. So through that, we were able to do a law enforcement and we did a lot of sensitization, awareness creation, all that. So 
the period went through, that means it, it didn't happen again, where you had 20, 30 chimps with people. So we went through a bumpy ride. As you know, it's not just in Sierra Leone, all across Africa, the bushmeat problem hasn't gone away. So it's been there. But we managed to curb it to a point, at least we can say we successfully destroyed the pet trade, totally. And we also got the government to ban export of chimpanzees. So th these are two major things during our time we did. But then, you know, humans are greedy. Our country is finding it difficult to find the resources. So this timber and the logging and getting um, timber to other countries, especially to places like China and Far East and Middle East and all that, that's something it became... Uh, what do I say, it's something like providing livelihood for many people. You, are, you have something like 10, 20,000 people involved in the timber trade. And government hasn't found a way how to divert them to other sectors. So this has been going on. So the problem we have in the last few years, I mean, we got to a point we did enough awareness. So not even a single chimp was found in the capital city or even in any major city. So the only time we rescued a chimp was Suppose uh, for bushmeat or something, someone killed a chimp, a baby chimp gets to a village or to a hunter's house, someone will inform us because we have created a very good network of people. So within a week or two, we will get a tip off, we will go and rescue the chimp. That was working perfectly okay. Then we realized that we need to do more than that. That is why in the last three, four years, we worked very hard, not only talk about don't shoot a chimp, don't eat a chimp, don't kill a chimp. We also want the Sierra Leoneans to connect with something higher. This is how we kind of teamed up with the government and worked very hard and we actually declared the chimpanzee as our national animal. Not a single country has done that. So you can see how far we have come in terms of getting the government to back us to say this species must be protected for posterity. And that is what we did, not a single. I mean, there are so many conservation programs have started even before us, before Takugama came into existence. But Sierra Leone is the first country to declare the chimp as its national animal and the one and only country. So that's a long way in terms of. But the problem is about the habitat destruction. That is what is causing this new influx. So you have vast forests are going, especially when government declared 16 areas in the country as protected areas and national parks. When we did the survey 10 years ago to look at the numbers, the wild chimpanzee population across the country, alarmingly what we found out was you had like 50% of the population in protected areas. You also had 50% outside protected areas. These are chimps learning to live in, you know, fragmented habitats, being in community forests and hamlets around these places, farmland. So this became a problem. And when the timber logging started, people didn't want to go into the protected areas because it had some guidance in terms of what you can do in a protected area. So basically the carnage took place outside protected areas community for us. People are poor, the, you know, neglected communities. For them, when a logger goes there and say, hey, you know, we got 50 hectares of trees standing, you know, it's the price. Because if you're going to talk about conservation, it doesn't go. We are a very small organization. There is no way we will be able to give a community $5,000 just like that. But a, a timber merchant can do that. 
and it was not controlled because this is outside the government area. And make it worse, the government basically uh, allowed the timber export to continue. So the people, you know, the loggers had a field day, basically. They had a field day. So lots of destruction took place in the last three, four years. And that is why we had this uh, rise in this influx. Before we had like two, three, four chimps a year we will rescue. But then suddenly we had like over 10, 12 chimps every year. So it's like in the last two and a half years we have rescued about 25 chimps or so. So what's the, at this point, what's the, what do you see as a solution to slow this influx? Yeah, we're trying. First, you need to understand the problem is the logging. Habitats are going, and these forests are the homes for the chimpanzees, right? Mm. So if you destroy their homes, they don't have a place to go. They are reduced into pockets where they are easy to be hunted. It's, it's very easy. And also the chimps cannot go into other protected areas because there are a healthy population of chimps there, and they will be considered to be intruders. They will be killed, hunted out anyway. So the solution is one to stop the, the timber logging and this government listened to us. In the last three, four months, they made a temporary moratorium in terms of export of all logging. But this, we don't know whether they're going to keep it or not. But we are campaigning that they should continue with it and make a permanent ban. That's one. The other thing is, rather than telling them, don't kill a chimp, this and that, because of it's against the law, that is why we declared it as a national animal. So when you say national animal, we also try the Sierra Leoneans to feel that this is something to be proud of. It's not something we're asking you not to kill for any reason, but if you think it is ours and we are the only country who has chimp as the national animal, probably you connect better with the people. So now- did that decree, in, in declaring it the national animal, did it give immediate protection in a different way to the chimp? It, it did. For us, after being here for 27 years, trying to address this chimp problem, it's just like everything else, right? Look at the climate change problem. You're talking to humans for how long and uh, nothing has changed. It's getting from bad to worse. And it's the situation for any wildlife across the country. So we are also going through such a period. That is why we thought, okay, let us not tell people, don't do this, don't do that. But maybe you close some, create something that close to your heart. Maybe they will protect it because it's theirs. We are becoming a little bit more selfish and we are only uh, taking care of what is close to us. We don't want to know about the rest of the thing. It's the same concept. So we thought, let's do that and see. And also to see, once we create this declaration of the animal, national animal, what we can do around it, how we grow an industry around it, how do we get uh, you know, musicians to sing about it, how do you get the poets to talk about it, how do you get the writers to write story about it, you know, how do you get that painter to paint chimpanzee and sell it, and how that carver can carve chimpanzee silhouettes or whatever. So we thought by doing all that, probably we can connect the people better with this so, particular... So when you say connect the people, is it, do you... Do you think about all Sierra Leoneans, or do you think, is, is that connect the people of Freetown? Because no, everywhere. I, I mean, when in the limited time that yeah. I've been here, yeah. uh, a couple of visits, it, it seems like those are two different worlds. Mm. There's kind of a Freetown world yeah. around the capital, and people are more fluent. They're, yeah. you know, and then you have this rural community where the bushmeat is happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, that is why we felt 
that announcing as a national animal, because when you go further, people are more scared of laws and, uh, you know, when the government declares something, they are because, you know, people in Freetown, major towns, they are a bit polluted and they know, you know, lots of corruption around and they can stand up to certain things. But the further you go away from Freetown, if they know that this is your national animal and you cannot kill it, they respect that. They feel something bad will happen to them if they do it. So it really works better for us outside than even from uh, Freetown. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah that's exact. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's the yeah. exact opposite of... Yeah. Of, of, but what yeah. we haven't done effectively is to carry the message across the country because we are underfunded, under-resourced. When you want to run a, you know, declaration is one thing, but then the government leaves the responsibility to you. You know, I told the ministers at that time, I said, look, your declaration has to be followed by resources. We need to get this uh, declaration out. We need to really disseminate this information across the country. But then it's no so resources. That's the biggest hurdle. That is point? the biggest hurdle. I think. Just, just I think. Uh, yeah. If awareness we can, across the exactly, area. and that is something extremely important. I think uh, uh, because everybody, or even people who want to help us to go there to help that, they need to understand how much work got into getting the chimp declared as a national animal. Right? It was. It, it was so easy. Other countries could have done it before us. And even this country with so many other species are also there. But for them to agree and to see with us and to do the research to understand, yes, it's a good time to declare the chimp as the national animal. I think we've done the hard work, right? And uh, that is not done with money. It's a lot of sacrifice, a lot of influence. That is how we got it. What we need now is the resources how to get this message out. Yeah. I guess that, that almost brings me to my last question, and that is, you have a reputation and a history for approaching things in a very different way than most sanctuaries. There's, um, you're, you're part of an organization across um, equatorial, well, beyond equatorial Africa, sub-Sahara Africa, really called PASA, or the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance. Mm -hmm. And most of those sanctuaries, I think, what, 23 sanctuaries in total. Correct. Um, most of those sanctuaries have been started by a single individual, like yeah. you, yeah. who ended up with an animal, mm -hmm. had a passion. Mm -hmm. But unlike many of those, you have been very... I would almost say entrepreneurial in your approach to it, both in in creating what is now Takagama, but also this conservation approach. You've been, it's, it's a strange pairing of words, entrepreneurial conservationist, because we don't normally think of it like that. We think of entrepreneurial business people. Yeah. But, but you have been, and what do you, was there a turning point in which you saw it, or is it just the nature of who you are that you, I you think, saw the bigger, more nuanced and more layered uh, problem? I think there's two ways of looking at your life. One is, as you age, you can either think that, um, okay, I've done as much as I, I can. Uh, now some other person will take over. That's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it, you've come this far, you know, why won't you pave the road even better for the next person. So for me, it's the second one. In terms of um, what else can you do more 
you know, so that you leave this place in a better way, so that whoever steps into my shoes, um, you know, can continue and probably do even better than what I have done. So it's more about um, finding ways and means to sustain the place, because for me, every time you ask somebody for a dollar or something, I feel defeated because I come from a background being an accountant and making my own money. So I don't, I, it's always hurt me to go and ask people for money. For me, it's more about how we can sustain these operations by ourselves. That is why almost 65, 70% of our operational cost now is um, raised by ourselves. We are earning that. And we are only going out to people when we want to have conservation programs, projects. We are asking for larger donations because we simply don't have it. And um, that is why I tell my guys, look, you know, till we get to that, we had a plan to get to 100% self-sustainable status by 2023. But unfortunately, with the COVID era, we couldn't achieve that. But it's been postponed. So we're still focusing on that. We want the sanctuary to sustain by itself. So that, because that's the success for any country in a development. If you're going to depend on running your program and your future based on handouts, I don't think it's a nice feeling. So the entrepreneurship is more, more to do with uh, kind of weaners out of that, you know, dependency. You know, you need to, so you feel. Plus, when you earn your money and you do your own stuff, I also don't want people to tell me what to do. You know, it's nice you do your stuff because it's you have raised the money and you're doing it. So it gives you that freedom. And uh, that's what we, we've been doing. Um, I mean, again, we are a little bit lucky because we are not too far from Freetown. So it gives us an opportunity to connect better with the political class and affluent people. And probably we need to do more in terms of um, getting that to a higher level so we can get to that 100% that we are craving for. Well, Bala, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, I know we have you trapped here because <laughs> you, you run the place, but it's been great to, to spend some time with you and do this live sitting on this. I wish um, I'll take a minute and describe it to everyone who's listening. We're, we're sitting on this wonderful little veranda. They've built a number of little cottages here at Takagama where their ecotourism business is and that's what helps the support that Paula was talking about, that's where it come, some of it comes from. And we're looking out and it's, the sun is setting through a hole in the tropical forest canopy and we've got sun pouring in on us and uh, we each have a beer and it's, it's a pretty perfect place. We should come back here and do, I'm looking across at my uh, producer, Meg Stark. Thank you so much for putting all of this together. And maybe we should, we should be doing all our podcasts from here. <laughs> I think this would be the ideal place. Anyway, I want to thank you for listening. This has been Talking Apes, where we look at the world of apes with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate people from around the world. You can always support Talking Apes uh, by going to our website at globio.org. That's G-L-O-B-I-O dot org and make a tax-deductible donation. We really appreciate your support, and that's really what makes this happen. So for all of us at Talking Apes, from Sierra Leone. Thanks 